Pol Pot was born Salath Tsar in 1925 to a moderately comfortable family in what was then the French Indo-Chinese province of Cambodia. Through relatives, Tsar was able to nurture connections with the region's royal family, and by the age of 24, he was studying in university in Paris. There, he fell under the spell of existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, and quickly joined a communist cell in a secret organization known as Cercle Marxiste. By the time Sartre returned to Cambodia in the early 1950s, he had fully absorbed all Sartre's doctrines of philosophical activism and, quote, necessary violence. By the 1960s, Sartre had joined the Khmer Rouge, a violent communist group struggling against French colonial rule. With war raging in neighboring Vietnam, the Indo-Chinese peninsula had become a battleground between communist and democratic forces. As Mao's China, Brezhnev's Soviet Union, and Nixon's America all sought to influence, if not control, Cambodia's political future, the Khmer Rouge swept in to seize power in 1975. Soon, the country was the site of one of the most fatal ideological exercises history has ever seen. Under the leadership of Salat Tsar, who had by then renamed himself Pol Pot, a policy known as Year Zero was unleashed. Year Zero was an analogy to the Year One of the French Revolution. There, the ensuing reign of terror had been signified by the guillotine. The Khmer Rouge used the killing fields. Seeking to wipe history away and start again, Pol Pot's method was to redefine concepts of law, education and culture. And he did so by herding the population from cities into the countryside, where they were set to work transforming a modern country into a medieval state. To destroy you is no loss, to preserve you is no gain, sloganed Pol Pot. Under the Khmer Rouge, the individual became expendable, and in the space of just four years, one-third of the population was exterminated. So I witnessed the crisis, the uh, killing field, because the Khmer Rouge, uh, you know, kill and starve and torture people to death. One of its millions of victims was Dith Pran. Fluent in several languages, including French and English, Pran was a translator for the U.S. Army when he came into contact with Sidney Shanberg, a reporter with the New York Times. As Richard Nixon withdrew American armed forces from Vietnam and Cambodia, Shanberg stayed behind to cover the Khmer Rouge's arrival. But their arrival forced all foreigners from the country, and as they swept the cities clean of the remaining native Cambodian population, Pran disappeared. For four years, he endured indescribable suffering starvation and torture. 50 members of his family were murdered. But incredibly, in 1979, he escaped into Thailand. It was during his escape that Pran stumbled through the acres of corpses resembling, as he described, soup bones in broth. In fact, it was Pran who first used the phrase killing fields. I promised myself, if I survive this killing field, I would not stop talking about this kind of crisis. In order to survive, you have to pretend to be stupid 
because they don't want you to be smart. They think that the smart people uh, will destroy them. Please, everybody, not allow this to exist again. One time is too many. On January the 20th, 1980, New York Times Sunday Magazine ran an article written by Shanberg called The Death and Life of Dith Pran, A Story of Cambodia. And Pran and I bonded, and I began to realize that he was just as obsessed a reporter. His reason was he was convinced that the rest of the world just didn't know what his people were going through, what they were suffering. And that was his mission. Upon reading it, British producer David Putnam set about optioning the film rights. This was not an easy task. Hollywood was already courting Shanberg. But Shanberg was taken by Putnam because he said Putnam was not, quote, making it to make a quick book. Signing the deal with Shanberg, Putnam then secured partial backing from Warner Brothers, who in turn told Putnam to hire two-time Oscar-winning writer William Goldman to do the script. But Putnam said no, that he wanted Bruce Robinson instead. I read a manuscript copy of what became with Nelly Draft, and I thought it was wonderful writing, just kind of a tour de force of writing, I didn't like subject matter, and I certainly wasn't. The idea of doing this a movie didn't necessarily appeal to me, but I thought it was just a stunning piece of writing, a really interesting, original. Pretty inspired idea, but I have no idea why I took the killing fields to him. Although Robinson had written dozens of scripts, none of them had actually made it to the screen. To anyone who has either met Robinson or heard him in interview, he is a fascinating, passionate character with deep political and ethical commitments. I don't know if you've ever seen a B-52 in flight. Have you? It's like hell. It's like something coming through the gates of hell. It's bigger than a 747 with four engines, black they are, they paint, they paint these things black. They're like hell, birds out of hell. An avowed wine lover, he authored and directed with Neil and I, he would always have a bottle, preferably claret, on his desk to help him live the characters. I'd get up and I have a couple of aspirins, a mouthful of SR, you know, sometimes a glass of wine at eight in the morning, which is really disgusting. And I get in here into this room and I sit here and I put a page in trying to think of the character. If I can't hear them, I can't write them. And then they come in sometimes. It's like trying to tune a radio. Robinson's first draft of The Killing Fields was a door-stopping 300 pages. And understandably, Putnam had great difficulty securing the interest of Hollywood directors. Ironically, Putnam found his director back in England. Roland Joffe had never directed a feature film before, but his work in BBC drama attracted Putnam's curiosity, and when he heard what Joffe had to say about the story, Putnam was hooked. I absolutely couldn't put it down, and that happens very rarely with screenplays, and the sense that one had that Bruce was in those scenes had somehow in a strange way got himself present in them was phenomenal. Everyone else Putnam had spoken to considered The Killing Fields a war movie. Somewhat, but not quite in the vein of The Deer Hunter. But Joffe said it was a love story between two men. When Joffe said that, Putnam was reminded of his own first reaction to Shanberg's article. Accompanying the article was a photograph of Pran embracing Shanberg in the Thailand refugee camp.
Jaffe's summation helped Robinson focus his sprawling but poetically written manuscript down to a two-hour movie. Now, the point I'm trying to make here is that when a writer is tackling a script, no matter what the scale of it, the writer's mettle is proven not by the story, but by their dexterity. A draft for the producer, another for the director, another for the actor, another for the studio, the writer has to adapt to the notes they're given. Then a new draft to please the new actor, a new draft to attract another actor after the first actor decides that they don't like the draft that they were given. A writer never wins an Oscar for best screenplay. It's for the best 59th draft of a script by a writer who has just been released from therapy. This is just not good enough. No is not good enough. This is a big story, a major story. You understand that? We are got to get down there. I know. But... I don't want to hear no. I want to hear how are we going to get down that river? We should be down there now. Taking its cue from Alan René's Holocaust documentary Night and Fog, The Killing Fields contains numerous strengths. Roy Walker's production design locates the chaos in a very harsh reality. Chris Menji's cinematography frames that chaos without ever making it pretty. Jim Clark's editing keeps the chaos very tight. And Mike Oldfield proved to be an inspired choice as the score's composer. For me, another strength is for other people a major flaw, namely the way Robinson viewed the relationship between Shanberg and Pran. To Robinson, it was akin to the relationship in Rudyard Kipling's poem Gunga Din, where an English soldier mistreats an Indian Bishti, but who was then saved by him. Then, when Gunga Din is shot and dies, the English soldier says Gunga Din was better for all the suffering he endured. For many critics, Robinson's script presented a patronising view of Dith Pran. And I picked up very, very quickly from Pran that this story was bullshit. Because Pran had said to me we were having a kind of a lunch in a hotel room and he said sometimes he used to hit me, sometimes he would kick me in the ass. And what are you telling me? This isn't uh, this isn't the kind of story that I've been told this this movie's about. To his great credit, a week later I went back to Sidney Schomburg and I said to him, "Listen, I don't buy what you're telling me, and I I think this story is very different to the one that you kind of put about." And uh, Sidney Schomburg said to me, "You must write what you want to write. You know, Putnam's chosen you to write this story. You do what you want." Another excellent decision was casting Hein Essen Gore in the role of Pran. Ngor had never acted before, but he had lived through his country's democide. Ngor's real-life experience can often be seen etched on his face as he acts out similar horrors. And yet, for all those robust decisions, the film's ending collapses into the dreariest of clichés with a completely misjudged use of music. Incredibly, Jaffe opted for this. Jaffe has claimed that he intended it to be an ironic comment on Pol Pot's vision of a Cambodian utopia. Only the scene isn't about irony. It's about solidarity. But either way, surely the overwhelming power of Pran's survival would have been enough on its own. I can guarantee you 
Had Joffe played it without music, no one in the audience would ever have said, you know what this moment really needs? That song by John Lennon. I mean, how about this instead? Jump! 